We will be reading Mark 8, 22 through 9, 1 this morning. If you wouldn't mind, please stand. Uh, we just like to stand to honor God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus, or, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him, uh, them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. He may be seated. Well, church, it's really good to be with you. It's been about a year and a half since I have been here and uh, able to preach here at Gateway. I, I tell you, it's a blessing to be a part of Redemption Church. I really love the pastors of this church. I, I love being a part of the churches in this, in, this, in this state that are worshiping God together. It's a beautiful thing to think about. I love Pastor Luke and uh, that he's able to take this time and what a wonderful staff that you guys have here. I, I just want to pre-warn you, if you don't know, just kind of give you a, a, a heads up. I do tend to get a little bit excited when I preach. So if I'm yelling, it's just because I'm excited. It's not because I'm angry at you. I might be angry at you, but you just, you'll never know it. I'll do it with a smile. No, I get excited, but you have, to, you have to love me because I'm family. You know, it's like you're embarrassed that I'm family, but I'm family. So you got you to gotta love me. You got to love me. I, I want you to picture this in your mind. And this is going to kind of set the context for uh, us preaching through Mark. I, I want us to remember what we've been through in all of this time as we've been preaching through Mark. And the way I want us to do that is I want you to think of a desperate single woman. 
Okay. I want you to think of a desperate single woman, but not anybody in particular. Somebody's nudging you next to you. I'm not specifically speaking about you, except for you, ma'am, in the back. I am uh, thinking of you. Just kidding. Uh, nobody conviction back there. But there is this desperate single woman. And what happens with a desperate single woman is this. What takes place in a desperate single woman's life is everything in her life is fueled by her desperation to get married. She so desperately wants to get married, she cannot have a normal relationship with somebody of the opposite sex because no matter who they are, whatever man comes into her life, she's immediately thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? And so every time somebody comes into their life, that question is constantly there and they're putting the expectations. And every time they see a great guy that comes in, that expectation is laid on top of it. And those expectations end up destroying a lot of relationships because the reality is all she really wants is somebody to rescue her from her desperation. Matter of fact, she's dreamed of it. She's thought about it. People have told her how great it is. She wants to be married so bad. And I want you to picture this desperate single lady seeing a man come into her life who fits none of what she wants. She's desperate, not stupid, right? He doesn't look like she wants him to look. He doesn't act like she wants him to ask. Matter of fact, she's embarrassed that he even shows interest and he comes into the scene and this man from the onset from the moment he met her walks up to her and in his best voice he tries to drop it down a few octaves he tries to just tell her hey let me go hey (laughs) baby I'm the man of your dreams girl Licking his lips, trying to give all of his, his, his moves, you know, dropping pickup. I am the man of you. I'm the man you've been waiting for all of your life. And then at her horror, he gets down on his knees. And at this point, she's been dreaming of it all of her life, but she did not dream of this. He gets down on his knees and says, will you marry me? And she knows what that means. That means that she has to give up every dream of every other guy that she thought would come along. She has to leave all other expectations and say, this is the one. I'm going to commit my life and follow him for the rest of my life. He is the one. I'm going to repent and walk away from all other dreams of it. And I'm going to commit. Otherwise, she has to figure out. How am I going to reject this guy? The reason why I want that picture in your mind is because often we cannot understand the atmosphere of Mark because I want you to understand Israel is that desperate woman who has been waiting for centuries, who's been waiting for generations for the Messiah to come. They've been longing for it. They've been anticipating it. All the prophets have been talking about it. Everybody's been saying the Messiah is coming. And matter of fact, they're so desperate for the Messiah to come. Every prophet, every person that does anything good, immediately they're going, is that the one? Is that the one? Is that the one? And no matter how often somebody comes by good, whatever king, whatever priest, whatever prophet, they're constantly thinking, is that the one? And then here comes Jesus. 
Jesus doesn't look like, doesn't fit any of their dreams, doesn't act like they want him to act, doesn't do what they want him to do. And so here he comes, and from the beginning of Mark, he says, I'm the man of your dreams. I'm the one you've been waiting for all of your life. All the prophets have talked about me. Everybody said I'm coming. And then at the beginning of Mark, he basically gets down on his knees and says, will you marry me? Well, where does he say that? He says, repent and follow me. It's this, commit your life to me. Repent and turn from all other things. Every other expectation you had of the king, every other expectation you had of the Messiah, every other dream, every other thing you had about who the Messiah was, I'm him, repent of all of that and commit to me. And Israel is in this place now where they are either going to fully commit and repent of all, but what we see often happen the most is they're figuring out how to reject him. Some are rejecting him in very harsh ways, others are calling him crazy. There's all these kinds of ideas of who Jesus is. And over the course of this book, Jesus keeps talking about him as king and what his kingdom is like. And if you've learned anything through the book of Mark, the kingdom of God is opposite of the kingdoms of this world. Can we say amen to that? Just for my sake. Thank you. All right. Everything he does is confronting the kingdoms of this world. Every time he heals, every time he teaches, he's showing how the kingdom of God is so different than the kingdom of this world. That's why they can't fit him as king because it doesn't look like anything they know or see. It doesn't fit in their system. How many of you relate to that kind of call? When Jesus called you to himself, he refused to fit into your system. Me. That's me. He would come and completely change the whole perception about who this king was. And church, what we have to see in this is something was blinding them. Something was keeping them from not seeing. And what I want us to do is over the, this, this week, I want us to just kind of rewind a minute. And I think Josh talked about this text a couple of weeks ago. But I want us to look up on the screen. I want you to see a storyline that I think Mark beautifully weaves throughout this. And starting in in Mark chapter 8, he starts talking about the Pharisees. And he shows us what spiritual blindness looks like. The Pharisees could not see that he was the Messiah. And they wanted things their way. And they wanted the Messiah to do what they wanted him to do. And Jesus, in an act of judgment, walks away and takes his hands off. See, a lot of us think the judgment is God zapping us from heaven. Watch out. Lightning's coming. But Romans shows us, and even this illustration shows us, that judgment is when Jesus gives us over to our sin and says, my hands are off. And lets us live under our own kingdom and our own rule. But what grace is, is when God actively engages in our lives and brings us to see and to know. And that's what we see in the next illustration. As the disciples have what I'll call spiritual blurriness. 
We looked at that a couple weeks ago uh, in Mark chapter 8, where there was blurriness. They, they knew that he was Jesus, but they, they were focused on other things. They were focused on bread. They were focused on provision. But Jesus was trying to focus them on it, and he patiently pointed them to himself. And then we see today, in the middle of these stories that we're going to look at, a physical illustration of an interesting healing. And the reason why I say an interesting healing, because this is the only time in Scripture where Jesus heals somebody in stages. Did you notice that in the story that was read? You look at it and you're like, was Jesus running out of power? (laughs) Was he like spitting on his eyes, be healed? He opened his eyes and Jesus is like, oh, whoops, didn't say the right words. Didn't put enough spit on you, my bad. No. No. This was a clear illustration of how Jesus heals spiritual blindness. And what we're going to see in this story of how Jesus heals this man is that it relates to how Jesus heals his disciples of spiritual blindness. And and I hope what you can see here is that when Jesus is dealing with his disciples, and we're going to look at this, that he asks them to come away from the crowds, just like he asks the man who is physically blind to come away from the crowds. He heals them away from everyone. So he pulls the man who has physical blindness away from the crowd, and then he pulls his disciples in the next stories that we're going to look at where he heals their blindness and blurriness. He pulls them away to Caesarea Philippi. He takes them away from the crowds. The next thing we see is that Jesus asks this physically blind man a question after he spits in his eyes and does that whole thing. He says, what do you see? And the man answers him just like he asks his disciples Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And they start to say what they see. But although they see, they see blurry. They don't see clear. And Jesus is adjusting his sight and he shows that he touches the man's eyes and then all of a sudden he sees clearly. He heals them in stages. He brings clarity in stages. The next thing he does is he warns them. He warns the man who was physically healed, and he warns his disciples, don't tell anybody. It's interesting how Mark puts this whole story together. First, he shows us what spiritual blindness is. Then he shows us what spiritual blurriness is. Then he gives us a physical illustration between the two stories. And then he goes into the next two stories, showing us how Jesus is the healer of blindness. Here's what I don't want us to get as we come into this sermon. I don't want us to get, because as we look at the world around us, we can see that there is spiritual blindness. People are blind to the realities of who Jesus is, what he has come to do, and what it is that his kingdom is about. People are blind to it, and what we can think, because we have a little bit of clarity, is we can think that they just need to squint real hard and they'll be able to see They just need to open their eyes a little bit wider and they'll be able to see. We get so frustrated at people that can't see rather than seeing in this story. We don't even see perfectly. And if it wasn't for the healing power of Jesus, we wouldn't see. 
that what we should see in all of these stories and what should be driven home by the end of this is that Jesus is the healer of spiritual blindness. And what I want us to look at are these three stages of how Jesus heals us of spiritual blindness. The first one I wanted to look at is in verse 27 through 30, where Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? I love this question. It's like what teachers do when they're asking questions where they already know the answers, just trying to get the crowd engaged, just trying to get the student involved. Parents do it all the time. You get driven. It drives you nuts, but you do it now to your kids, right? Who do men say that I am? And when Jesus asks this question, it's like when I ask my kids questions, all the little ones just want to, I know, I know, I know, I know. They want to raise their hand even if they didn't even listen to the question, right? They don't even know what the question was. They just want to give an answer. So he says, who do men say that I am? And everybody has an answer. Oh, I heard somebody say you were John the Baptist. Oh, I heard somebody say you were Elijah. Oh, man, did you hear that somebody said you were a prophet? And they're all just yelling out answers. And Jesus stops, stops them in the midst of all of their answers. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Notice this, that he starts with who do men say that I am? And then in the next one, he says, who do you say that I am? Because what really matters is not whether what you know about what people say about Jesus. What really matters is what do you say about Jesus? What do you believe that he is? And notice this, that nobody at that point has an answer. Everybody had an answer about who they thought he was. But when it came to who do you say that I am, only one man spoke up, and this is Simon Barjona, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, in the account in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, where the same story is told, Peter says, you're the Christ. Notice this. I I love this story because it just reminds me so much of me often. I mean, the the reality of Jesus going, who do you say that I am? And then all of a sudden he goes, I know, you're the Christ. And then in Matthew, Jesus says to to Simon, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. Only my Father in heaven could show you that. I love that response because what he's showing Simon is this. You wouldn't come up with that on your own. You wouldn't come up with, you're the Christ on your own. Only my Father had to open your eyes and show you who I was. He will not give credit to Peter. He won't give credit to Simon. And then the next thing he does, after he says, only my father, flesh and blood could not show you that. But in Matthew, what he does at that point is change his name from Simon Barjona to Peter. Love that. If you're going to change my name, Jesus, change it to Peter. I mean, that is the best name. It's Rock. That's the manly name, right? You think of a buff dude, eye going up. Maybe you don't watch those movies. But this dude, I'm the Rock. Thank you, Jesus. Somebody got it right. You truly are a prophet. Look at these. Look at me. I'm the rock. I get it. All of a sudden, Peter gets a new name. His name is Rock. And in the next story, the very next story, 
This is not days later. This is not months later. This is moments later. Jesus starts telling them about that he's going to suffer. And he's going to die. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be bruised. He's going to have the crown of thorns pushed. He's going to, have, he's going to be whipped. He's going to be put on a cross. He's going to die and suffer. And Peter, with his new name, Rock, does something that is just, I mean, it's, it, it lives up to the name. He pulls Jesus aside. And rebukes Jesus. Can you picture this? He goes, Jesus, get over here. Get over here. Notice, his name is just changed to rock. I mean, what Peter is doing is like, it, it, it takes like rocks. You get what I'm saying? Like he really had to just live. I mean, he, Jesus, get over here. Jesus comes over, and he goes, look, you just changed my name. What did you change it to? I'm, I'm adding some stuff here, right? <laughs> Give me literary kind of, a, you know, freedom here. I mean, what did you do? Rock. Jesus, I will never let you suffer and die. I'm your boy. I got your back. Anybody comes to you, they're coming through me. Eyebrow goes up. I can't do it or I would try. <laughs> They're coming through me. He's trying to show Jesus his loyalty. Now remember, Peter was not just blowing smoke. He tried to do this. How many of you know what Peter tried to do when the soldiers tried to come and take Jesus? Anybody know? Cut his ear off. And when we think of it, we think not only is he a rock, he's a ninja. He just went, cut the ear off. <laughs> cut the ear off. I'm so good with the sword, I'll cut... Other things off if you don't walk away, you know? No, listen. The idea is he was trying to cut the neck off, and the dude, you know what I mean? He wasn't trying to just cut his ear off. He was trying to kill him. And Jesus is like, sorry about that. Put the ear back on. Can you imagine that moment? Healing the guy who's about to take you to the cross. I mean, could you imagine putting the ear back on the dude. And in that moment where he's saying, I got your back, we would think in our minds, man, Peter is so loyal. But Jesus says something way different than that. He says, get thee behind me, Satan. Remember, he just got his name changed to Peter. Now it's going to Satan. I mean, that's not the progression you want to go in. You know what I mean? Jesus just called him rock. Now he's calling him Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. And then he says something extremely eye-opening. He says, my father didn't show you that. Your flesh showed you that. This is not something my father would reveal to you. One minute he's having clarity about who the Christ is. And once suffering starts to come into the picture, his flesh blurs his sight. That sounds a lot like the healing before. What do you see? I see men walking like trees, just like Peter's confession. I see that you're the Christ, 
but it's not clear because I would never let the Christ actually suffer. Jesus is bringing clarity to this confession by showing him the suffering that he will go through. And then what takes place next? is inside of that he shows that it is the Father. It's not Father show you that. This is Satan, and he rebukes. Jesus rebukes Peter like he rebukes Satan in the garden when, when Satan tries to give Jesus an easy way out to redemption. He says, bow down to me, and I'll give you the whole world. What he's doing here is showing us that the cross... And the resurrection is not just something that happened to Jesus. I hope that this gets driven home into our spirits. The cross is not just something that happened to Jesus. Nobody killed Jesus. You couldn't, you couldn't kill him. He could have called on angels and he could have been taken away to the Father. But you have to hear this. Jesus gave his life for us. He laid down his life on the cross. Jesus came, sent by the Father, knowing what it was he was called to do. The cross is that place in which he accomplishes the work. He pays the price that we could never pay for ourselves. He does the work we could never do for ourselves. We are completely dependent upon the work of the cross. Jesus is showing his disciples what this kingdom is like, what this king is like what the Messiah has come to do. I can relate to Peter. One minute I have moments of clarity, but then I realize how self-righteous, how the leaven of the Pharisees is still in me. I remember sitting in the Passion of the Christ, and this is not a promotion for you to watch. It's just a story to tell. And I was with a group of pastors who I was preaching for at their church. And what ended up happening was they just had come out and they said, let's go watch the movie. And I'm like, okay. We go to the movie and I don't, I don't know them all that well. I'm trying to show them that I'm this, you know, respected pastor, if you will. We go into the movie and this movie starts and something came over me. I mean, I didn't just cry like a chick flick movie where there's uh, something in my eye. I'm talking about snot. I'm talking about scream. I'm weeping. And it is embarrassing if I cared. You know what I mean? Looking back, it was embarrassing. And the moment I was overwhelmed, I see Jesus suffering and dying, and it just hit me in that moment. I am crying. And at one moment in the movie, and this is not an over-exaggeration, I'm telling you, this, this was extremely important to me in my life. At one moment in the movie, if you remember, he's getting whipped and flesh is being torn from his body. And I screamed in the movie theater. I've never done this to this day. I screamed at the top of my lungs, stop! Now everybody's into the movie, but all of a sudden they're like, who's this weirdo, you know? And in that moment, the Spirit was so good to me. God was so good to me to speak to me at that moment. If he would have stopped, you would have no hope of redemption. And I realized there's something in me like Peter who feels like I can pay the price for my own sin and protect Jesus from the suffering that he had to do on the cross. 
that if I would have just lived a better life, if I would have just done all the right things, I could pay the, my price. I could take on the debt of my son. I am so self-righteous. And remember in the story before that we saw on the timeline, Jesus warns his disciples of the yeast of the Pharisees. Church, this is the yeast of the Pharisees. This belief that we don't need a Messiah to suffer for us. We don't need one to die. We don't need one to take the pain and the price that we need. But this kingdom is so paradoxical. This kingdom is so upside down that Peter's mind is being blown as he's seeing that Jesus didn't just come and was killed. He prophesied his own death. He knew what he had come to do. And anyone who stood in the way of that was Satan. Not only does it clear up our sight when we see who Jesus is and what he's come to do, but the other thing that clears up our sight is when we see, when Jesus talks about suffering, the reason why we reject it so passionately is because we know that means we get to enter into suffering with him. The next thing he begins to do is tell his disciples about this upside-down kingdom where they are to deny themselves, where they are to lose their own lives. And what he shows them is something that is so out of their scope of understanding. He starts telling them that power is being redefined. See, in the kingdoms of this world, power is something where someone swoops in and overthrows the government and establishes kingdom. But this king shows about the power of a suffering servant, that whoever wants to gain his life will lose it. Whoever wants to find his life will lose it, will deny himself, will take up this cross, and will follow Jesus Jesus invites his disciples into a new definition of success. He says, what does it profit a man? We are a people who only do things that we think are profitable to our success that will move us forward. And he's saying, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus redefines in this statement the values of the kingdom and what success is in the kingdom of God. Here's the beauty of what just took place in this story. Jesus shows us our tendency to think we have it once we get a little bit of clarity. Can you say amen to that? Once we see just a little bit, we feel like we could rebuke Jesus and tell him the way things are supposed to go. And how much we desperately need him to constantly focus us back on who he is, what he's come to do, and what our place in his kingdom is. The reason why I think he put this story of this man being healed of physical blindness 
right in the middle of the spiritual blindness and this healing of spiritual blindness is to show us the posture that our hearts should be because it was the people that came to Jesus in the story of physical blindness and they came begging him to heal. That should be us. That should be our hearts. God, I I need you to open my eyes. I can't just keep squinting and trying to adjust my own sight. I can't just trust in all the things that I see and know. I, I, I can't just believe I got this whole thing down. I need you to keep focusing me on you and your kingdom and your work. I need the gospel. I need you to set my eyes on you. And if there's anything we grab a hold of in this text, it's not some self-righteous leaven that we can heal ourselves, but we need to humble ourselves and cry out, heal us of our blindnesses, open our eyes, adjust our sight, take away the blurriness, and what he's going to show us is who he is, and what he has accomplished on the cross, and what he's called us into. The beauty of this is that we serve a God who is the only one that can open our eyes. Spiritual blindness is the most dangerous thing, and here's the reason why, because you think you can see you think you can see and you're no longer desperate matter of fact it gets so deeply in us that like the Pharisees we feel like we can rebuke Jesus like Peter we feel like we can rebuke Jesus because we see more clearly than him but spiritual blindness can only be healed by a loving Savior who won't judge us by taking his hands off of us, but will put his hands on us and open our eyes to the reality of who he is. It puts us in the posture of what every Christian should revel in. I need Jesus to heal me. I'm so desperate for him to open my eyes constantly have a wrong view of who he is. I constantly have a wrong view of what he's come to accomplish, and I think I can do it on my own. I'm constantly adjusting my my eyes of success, and I'm getting swept away. And every time I look at the things of the world, and every time I look at myself, things get blurry. But thanks be to God that we can come together in times like this, and we can come to a table where we drink of his blood, and we eat of his body, and we're reminded once again, Nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will bring me hope. Nothing else will fill the hungers of my heart. Nothing else will make me see more clearly than when I'm looking in the face of Jesus. So today, our prayer is open our eyes. Our prayer is turn our eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his face. If there's anything I joyfully be accused of as a preacher, it's at the end of my sermons. Nobody knows what to do except to depend on Jesus.
I want you to feel so hopeless and desperate unless Jesus moves on your heart. I don't want to give you a whole list of things. I want you to know this. If Jesus doesn't move, we've got no hope. But here's the good news. He heals. He opens our eyes. And he patiently does it in stages. Even when we think we see clearly, he keeps opening our eyes. Thanks be to God that we have a Savior who loves us and is patient with us. So let's pray and turn our attention to him and come desperately hungry before him remembering who he is and what he's done. Father, this story is a great reminder of how much we need you. This story shows us once again how easily we begin to think we can, we can do it on our own. That you've given us some clarity and now we just, we'll take it from here. God, I, I know there's some people in this room who are just blind and want nothing to do with you, Jesus. God, I ask that you would be patient with them. That today you would open their eyes and that they would see how much they desperately need you. That they would not trust in themselves. That they would refuse to be their own Lord and Savior. But they would turn to you. And their eyes would be opened by your spirit. They would realize that you are touching them. Father, there's some in this room who see blurry. You've opened their eyes a bit and they're still seeing some things about who you are. But God, they're getting distracted by suffering and the things of the kingdom. And they still think they can see super clear. But God, I pray they'd come humbly, crying out to you, realizing they need you today. Just like they needed you the first time you opened their eyes. And Father, I pray that you would continue to adjust our sight. Let us see more clearly. And Lord, we trust you with our sight. Lord, we trust you that you will be the one who will open our eyes clearly and that we will see you face to face. That the whole goal of this whole life, that there will be a day that we will look at you face to face and we will see everything fully clear. Lord, when I look away, when I look at my life, when I look at my works, when I look at the things in this world, everything comes blurry. But when I look in your face, I see who you are, what you've done, and what I've been called to do. Help us today. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Aaron.